This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. The world is full of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Hello. Are you okay? Have you recovered? <laughs> you were so emotional. We went to see Shut the up. Little, little Mermaid over at you. Disney Springs, the, the new one. We had to sit through the closing credits so that no one would see you cry. Yeah. <laughs> I even covered for you. I said, she just, she got popcorn salt in her eyes. Allergies to salt, oh, salt allergies. Salt eyes. Yo, you know how it is with yeah. the old salt eyes. Yeah, I do. First of all, yes, I loved it. Uh, it was very nostalgic for me. There were a few moments that just delighted the crap right out of me. But also, and we had talked about this, um, it was my dad's birthday who yes. has passed and he was the one that took me to see the little mermaid you know originally and mm. it was and then at the end when she knows she's going to be missing her dad and you know it was it was all just a lot all at once and uh also i love sebastian i'm feeling a little weepy because i can't get under the sea out of my head yeah. again yeah you got up this morning um while i was making coffee i was listening to the scuttlebutt uh, one of the new songs in the movie and you just were shaking your head like, oh, good. <laughs> That's going to be in That's going to be there all day. That and I Want You by Savage Garden has been just I know, running honey. circles in my head for some reason. Anytime I see your face, I just close my eyes and I am taken to a place where you press the mind. I'm okay, a gentle that's, feeling. Okay. That's fine. That's enough. We we really should get started because there is a thunderstorm moving in. I don't even try to explain. I just hold on tight and if it happens again, I will move so slightly through the arms of the lips and the face and the human cannibal and I need you, I want you. Chicka cherry cola. That's the <laughs> only part I know. Yeah. So if you hear any thunder in the background, just consider it uh, special effects to add to the ambiance of what we're doing today. Oh, is your your story spooky because that would work out really well yeah unfortunately not at all yeah me no, neither no oh. no let's journey down a rabbit hole a rabbit hole of history mysteries i like i love saying history mysteries that's just fun today's topic uh sounds like it belongs in a high-tech science lab but in reality it hails from the distant past oh today we're going to talk about ancient atomic theory I didn't even realize that was a thing. The first modern experimental evidence of the existence of atoms came in the early 19th century. Uh, in 1803, an English chemist, John Dalton, published his atomic theory, which proposed that elements were made up of tiny, indivisible particles 
called atoms. Indivisible? Yes. At that point... Well, he was wrong, because they are divisible. Right, they are. But at that point, this is what they believed. They were indivisible particles, called atoms. Dalton's theory explained the behavior of gases and provided a framework for the understanding of chemical reactions. Are you sure he didn't think they were invisible? Pretty sure indivisible. That's what they believed at the time. We didn't understand that you could split atoms until much later. Had he never been to the the swoopy whoop building with the woo whoop swoop whoop whoop swoop swoops? The Guggenheim? <laughs> That's about as swoopy a building as you can you can get. Uh, no, I meant like the 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 accelerator. <laughs> oh, CERN. No, the CERN. <laughs> no, CERN was nowhere to be found. Speaking of Guggenheim, I just have to interject really quickly. The other day I referenced Gutenberg, and you were like, what does Steve Gutenberg have to do with this? <laughs> and I was like, no, no. You just said Gutenberg. You were referring to, of course, the printing press. Right. Uh, but my mind immediately went to the classic comedic cinematic series of Police Academy movies. Did Steve Gutenberg write books? No, honey. <laughs> no. Oh, okay. Sorry. Please. So continue. anyway, yeah. First evidence of atoms was detected in the early uh, 1800s. But way before we even understood what atoms were, there were brilliant minds already dissecting the minute building blocks of the universe. We're talking about ancient Hindu text, the Vedas. They were composed around 1500 to 500 BCE and are considered the oldest scriptures of Hinduism. But these texts weren't just religious or spiritual. Hidden in their verses, they contain mind-boggling insights into science, mathematics, and believe it or not, atomic theory. Uh... Yeah. These texts were pondering on atoms, the very tiny particles that form the building blocks of matter. They didn't call them atoms, but the sages of ancient India were conjuring up complex atomic theories while folks in other parts of the world were still figuring out how to use the wheel. Which is where I would remain if I was like, you know how they're just those great thinkers of the world right. and, and I would just, I don't know. Television still really confuses me. I don't understand it. <laughs> the Vedas, these books are like the philosophical and spiritual foundation of Hinduism. The term Veda translates to knowledge or wisdom in Sanskrit. There are a treasure trove of hymns, of rituals, philosophical discussions, and have played a central role in shaping Indian culture and religious practices. The Vedas are divided into four primary collections, and the teachings and principles revolve around understanding the nature of existence, self, and the universe. So here's where things start to get really interesting. As we now understand atoms making up everything in the universe, the ancient sages of the Vedas, they kind of beat us to the punch. They theorized about a, an entity called Paramanu. In Sanskrit, that means beyond Adam. Para-anu, essentially beyond the atom or the smallest particle. Okay. So these guys, picture this, they're kind of sitting around probably under a banyan tree or something, and they came up with the idea of paramanu, the indivisible particles that were so tiny it was invisible to the naked eye. Paramanu was conceived as the ultimate, undividable, and absolute particle of matter. Now, flashback to what I was talking about 
the original modern day science mm. discovery, well, not discovery, but uh, recognition of atoms, they thought that was the base particle, that it was indivisible. Right. But as you pointed out, we were wrong. But the Hindus knew it. Strikingly similar to our modern concept of what atoms are today, what we understand as atoms today. Scientists discovered that atoms could be split into protons, neutrons, and electrons. For a very long time, we thought the atoms were the smallest particles. But 2,000 years ago, Hindu sages were theorizing about this. They even had a name for it, Paramanu. So in a nutshell, these ancient thinkers had their own version of atomic theory, conceived without any of the scientific equipment or knowledge that we have today, no atomic microscopes. They were truly ahead of their time, just combining philosophy, spirituality, and what we now call physics into a unified view of the universe. According to the Vedas, Paramanus combined to form Anu, what we might think of today as a more complex form of matter, kind of like... Uh, you could describe it as the pieces of the atom coming together to form an atom or how atoms will bond together to form a molecule. Okay. The Paramanus themselves were considered eternal, indestructible, and not unlike our understanding of certain subatomic particles. The real magic happened when they came together. Depending upon how they were combined, they could form different types of matter. This concept, of course, resonates with our modern day knowledge of, at of atomic structure where we know that different combinations of protons and neutrons and electrons create different elements in the periodic table. Mm. They knew this, or what? they theorized about it. That's kooky. But they even went a little bit further. They associated these combinations with qualities. For example, they theorized that certain combinations of paramanus could be the root of color, of taste, and even sensory perceptions. That's really interesting. It suggests they had a pretty sophisticated understanding of the world at the microscopic level, even though it was 2,000 years ago. How though? Sitting around talking about things and theorizing and using their minds. So let's time travel to modern times and compare the two views of the universe, the Vedic atomic theory and the modern atomic theory. So you've got the Paramanu, the smallest indivisible particle according to the Vedas and how they can combine to create different atoms, different forms of matter. Fast forward a few millennia and we have a similar idea with our modern atomic theory. Atoms combined in different ways create a variety of matter mm -hmm. and how we see things in the universe from gases to solids to liquids and so on, all the way up to complex molecular structure like human beings. Or like how aluminum oxide, iron, titanium, chromium, or magnesium makes a sapphire. Yeah, just like on Manifest. Now it gets even more mind-boggling. I'm intrigued with quantum physics and the various experiments that are done. And it's a realm of science that has strange concepts like particles can be in two places at the same time. And change based on whether or not they're being observed. That's exactly what I'm getting to. Things oh. get pretty weird, especially when we're observing them. It's wild. Now, going back to the Vedic version, they saw the universe as a place of constant change and flux, where the fundamental particles could combine and recombine in infinite ways. The vision resonates with the quantum physics theories, where particles are not static things, but are seen as probabilities and waves of potential. What? At the heart of the Vedic philosophy is a concept that's as mystifying as I can possibly imagine. Brahman. In the Vedas, Brahman is described as the ultimate reality, the absolute truth, the universe in its entirety. Brahman is considered to be 
consciousness itself. The ultimate reality, according to ancient sages, is not made of matter or energy or even tiny indivisible particles. It's pure consciousness, the observer, the knower. Now you bring it up to quantum physics in the 21st century, there's a thing called, as you mentioned, the observer effect or the measurement problem. Simply put, it's the idea that just observing or measuring a quantum system can change its behavior. It's as if these particles know they're being watched and behave accordingly. Just observing a wave will collapse it to a particle. Or the slit theory. The slit theory. I was just going to say, if you want a mind-blowing demonstration of this, look up the double slit experiment. Yeah. There are many great YouTube videos that... Uh, that describe it in, in very simple terms, which is how I understand it. Yep. So could these ancient Veda texts, with their focus on consciousness as the ultimate reality, be saying pretty much the same thing that modern quantum physics is now grappling with? Could the observer, consciousness if you will, indeed be an integral part of the fabric of the universe? Oh my gosh. It's an intriguing thought. Sure is. On one hand, we have ancient wisdom handed down through millennia, asserting that consciousness is the ultimate reality. On the other hand, we have cutting-edge science, quantum physics, suggesting that the act of observing can influence the very nature of reality. It's almost like these ancient sages and modern physics are kind of reading from the same textbook, mm. just ones written in Sanskrit. And it poses the question, you know, if we think of ancient texts and modern science as being at odds, we could be wrong. What if we just changed our perspective a little bit? What if we saw them not as adversaries, but partners in a way that when you put the pieces together, help us better understand the universe? Mm. It's mind blowing to me. It really is that 2000 years ago, they were sitting around having discussions like the ones that Max Planck had. Right before he went to the swoopy building. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Side note, one of my favorite movies, The Legend of Bagger Vance, mm -hmm. there are interpretations that draw parallels between the characters in the movie, specifically Bagger Vance, Will Smith, and Ranulf Juna, and the Hindu epic, the Bhagavad Gita. Bagger Vance, Bhagavad Gita. They don't make the connection directly in the movie, but in the Bhagavad Gita, Lord Krishna serves as the charioteer and a guide to the warrior prince Arjuna, on the battlefield. And in the movie, Bagger Vance assumes that role as a caddy and a mentor to Juna, a former golf prodigy. Both Krishna and Bagger Vance take on seemingly ordinary roles while imparting wisdom and guidance to their respective counterparts. Mm. The teachings Krishna imparts to Arjuna in Bhagavad Gita revolve around duty, righteousness, and the nature of existence. Krishna emphasizes the importance of fulfilling one's responsibilities without attachment to the outcomes and encourages Arjuna to find his inner strength and fight for what he believes is just. In Bagger Vance, Bagger Vance serves as the catalyst for Ranulf Juna's spiritual and personal transformation. He guides Juna in rediscovering his love for the game of golf and helps him overcome his inner demons and self-doubt. His teachings to Juna can be seen as loosely paralleling the lessons of Krishna. They both explore the themes of self-realization, purpose, and the transcendent nature of the human spirit and reality. They emphasize the importance of letting go of attachments, mm. finding inner strength, and fulfilling one's duty or purpose in life. And I was just watching 
an interview with Brian Cranston, he was asked, what's the best advice you can give somebody regarding acting? And he said, when you go to an audition, stop thinking that you need it. Stop thinking that you're there auditioning for a job. Your job is to create a character based on the information they give you. Mm. Just go in and present that character and then let it go. Yeah. Very similar. We've had that conversation before about job interviews of any kind. Yeah. My source information, The Tao of Physics by Fridjof Capra, Quantum Enigma from Fred Kuttner, and The Marriage of Sense and Soul, Integrating Science and Religion by Ken Wilber. That was really interesting. It's a fascinating topic. And I, as you know, love that point where spirituality and science intersect. I know a while back we were talking about the Bagger Vance thing, and you said that it had been so long since you'd seen it, Mm. so I... I sneaky pants bought you the DVD and we were going on like a weekend trip somewhere. So I brought it so we could watch it on our weekend trip together. And then the place that we went didn't have a DVD player (laughs) and we still haven't watched it. No, we still haven't. We're we're overdue. (laughs) And if you've not seen Bagger Vance, watch it. If you have seen it, watch it again with that idea in mind. It's a whole different movie. Oh, you're being very bossy right now. Do it. Oh, this message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. 
And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura frames, and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout. And you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. And now, that thing in the middle. Picture this. The 17th century Edo period in Japan. No Netflix, no Nintendo, and definitely no nuclear weaponry. Instead, we have something far more potent. A hilarious arms race. Not nukes, but toots. That's right, fart battles, enshrined in the infamous Hegasen Scrolls. These hand scrolls could be dubbed the Magna Carta of Mischief or the Declaration of Derriere Destruction. Just imagine esteemed gentry in full traditional garb blasting off a contest of who can pass the most powerful farts. It's the Cold War with a warm breeze. The fart battles, an absurd tableau of trouser trumpets that puts the Cuban Missile Crisis to shame. You see, in these fart battles, there were no fallout shelters, just delicate fans held aloft as the only defense against the incoming salvo of flatulence. You could think of it as a mutually assured destruction scenario, where both sides unleash their gas in a bid for ultimate dominance. But the only thing that's mutually assured here is the hilarity with each scroll telling tales of epic wind-breaking warfare that could knock a sumo wrestler off his feet. In the grand course of human history, it's important to remember there was once an arms, or maybe a cheeks race, that was so silly it could only be told in the format of hand scrolls. As for who won these fart battles, it's safe to say that where there's smoke there's fire, and in case of Hegason, where there's wind, there's laughter. Somebody posted in the Freaks of Box of Oddities group, uh, Croy Estrite wrote, I hope JG and Kat see this. I was the person who sent the book Phantom Shot. I met the author a few years ago and randomly randomly found my copy and knew Jethro would enjoy it. You were right. Mm. I was so excited when I sent it, I forgot to send a message as well. Love you guys. Glad you got it. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for reaching out. That would have bugged me not knowing who sent that. Mm. It has happened a couple of times where things have just arrived to us. And we love so much your gifts and your thoughts and all that business. And sometimes it's just like, who said this? (laughs) (laughs) We got a message from Kylie. It says, hi, guys. I thought I had my first boo effect today after your reading of a listener's message during episode 544. I was so excited to write in and tell you that listener isn't alone in her fear of Brannock devices <laughs> because I also stepped on one as a kid. It turns out you were just reading my own message that I forgot that I sent months ago. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was so weird. Her name was also Kylie. <laughs> <laughs> Truly a member of the Freak family. I love that so much. Lily from Idaho writes, Hi, y'all. I just listened to Box 542. 
Jethro's story about butterfly people and Kat insistently pointing out butterflies' taste for corpses. It made me cackle because that's a fun fact my family likes to bring up whenever they see butterflies. <laughs> we discovered this morsel of knowledge when I was probably six or seven when we went to a waterfall as a family outing. When we reached the little pool at the bottom of the waterfall, the ground was covered in butterflies and they were flying all around. We were all discussing how pretty it was until we realized that they were all feasting on dead frogs and toads that had fallen off the rocks. We assume they were trying to jump off the waterfall and overshot it onto the rocks. Due to the trauma of this event, we now insist on telling everyone we know this fun little fact. I love that. Thank you both for being you. You guys give me lots of new facts and material to enlighten and horrify my coworkers with. That's amazing. Lily from Idaho. Thank you, Lily. Say hi to Idaho. I found an old library for sale in Idaho the other day, and I asked, would you want to move to Idaho? And you're like, sure. (laughs) And that's why I love you. (laughs) Well, if ever there's an opportunity to to live in an old library, I'm in. Mm. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. More fun than a Civil War reenactment without the smell of fried chicken, sweaty wool, and sunscreen. This is The Box of Oddities. That storm is getting closer. Would you please tell me a story? Folk Amelia is, oh, did you want to do the uh, what you got for me jingle? People were so thrilled that you busted it out the other day. All right. What you got for me? What, what you, what, what you, what you got for me? What, 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 what you got for me? Cat was making her breasts dance. No, I wasn't. To the beat of that. Folk Amelia is a rare congenital condition characterized by underdeveloped limbs or the absence of limbs. It occurs when the upper or lower limb buds of an embryo fail to develop properly during the first trimester of pregnancy. 
The condition can be caused by genetic mutations, exposure to certain drugs or chemicals, or a viral infection during pregnancy. Individuals with focamelia may have short or missing arms and legs, as well as other physical abnormalities like malformed fingers or toes. Sarah Biffin was born in 1784 to a family of farmers in Somerset. She was born with no arms and only vestigial legs. And it's believed that it was a result of Focamelia. Sarah wanted very much to never be a burden to those around her. So she worked diligently at a very young age to become as self-sufficient as she could. She learned to read and later taught herself to sew and write using her mouth. This was all before the age of 10. How, How do you sew using your mouth? The gods want to know, apparently. Sarah's father worked as a farm laborer and a cobbler and a draper. And at the will of her parents to help make ends meet, Sarah started traveling from town to town as the subject of public exhibition. Oh, geez. She was bound to her quote-unquote conductor. His name was Emmanuel Dukes. And she toured with him to fairs where curious people would pay to watch her exhibit her many talents, which she was constantly working to improve and expand upon. She learned to use scissors with her teeth. I don't even understand how that's possible. I don't know. She learned how to make her own dresses. She became proficient in drawing and painting, using her teeth to hold the tools she needed. She became known as, and billed as, the Limbless Wonder. So the British Library has a bunch of old handbills and various other pieces of paperwork that tell us about that young artist's life back in the day. Daniel Lyson made a few scrapbooks in the early 19th century. His collection of printed materials on different topics, like people he met at fairs and exhibitions, include details about Sarah. She earned five pounds a year to paint for crowds at fairs. Five pounds a year. Yeah. Even adjusted for inflation. That's paltry. Yeah, it seems like maybe her handler got a large portion of what she was making. Seems to be a pattern. Yeah. License Collectania really gives us a peek into Sarah Biffin's touring life. There are handbills from Tetford, from Sheffield, from Wells and Rochester, and it shows that people could pay a small fee to see her, and sometimes to get a little piece of art. One advertisement proclaimed her a great genius in drawing and painting with her mouth, adding, the reader may easily think it impossible she should be capable of doing what is inserted in this bill, but if she can not, and even much more, the conductor will forfeit 1,000 guineas. So people would come, and they would sit for portraits by Sarah, often in miniatures, and Sarah became the leading attraction. The Earl of Morton sat for his portrait at St. Bartholomew's Fair in London and was so impressed by Sarah's extraordinary talent, he sponsored her to receive lessons from the Royal Academy of Arts painter William Craig. Wow. Have any of her art pieces survived? Yes. I can't wait to see them. You know I'm going to show them to you. I know you are. Sarah branched out on her own after a decade with Dukes, her handler, and found great success and a much more lucrative setup. 
Biffin's portrait miniatures became so popular, she set up a studio on Bond Street in London. It was 1816, and she's an independent artist, and she's taking commissions. The Earl also introduced her to other patrons for portrait miniatures, including members of the royal family. All right, so I'm guessing at this point she's making more than five pounds a year. She's making more than five pounds a year, yes. Good. Sarah was incredibly prolific and painted several self-portraits. In most of her self-portraits and her most well-known self-portraits, she's depicted with a paintbrush sewn into the sleeve of her dress that she would manipulate using both her shoulder and her mouth. So you can kind of get a vibe of how she might put the end of the paintbrush in her mouth and then it goes through her dress, you see, and that helps create a little more control and then she's like mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in 1821 london's royal society of arts awarded sarah biffin a silver medal for one of her historical miniatures her fame was so great at this time that charles dickens actually mentioned her in two of his novels really one of the the mentions was the artist with no arms. I mean, so it wasn't oh, okay. like Sarah Biffin, blah, 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 but, you know. Hashtag no arms. <laughs> it's kind of like that. It's kind of like that. Unfortunately, after the Earl of Morton passed away in 1827, Sarah Biffin ran into some financial problems. Her manager, as I mentioned, Mm -hmm. had used up a lot of her money. She didn't have a noble sponsor to support her anymore. She had married William Stephen Wright on September 6, 1824, and tried unsuccessfully to revive her success under the name Mrs. Wright. But not long after that, uh, William Stephen Wright took off with much of Sarah's money, leaving her a very small annual allowance. What the hell, you guys? Yeah, he's kind of a douche. In 1839, Queen Victoria bought Sarah Biffin's portrait of her father, not Sarah Biffin's father, but... Queen Victoria's father. Right. And it's in the Royal Collection Trust to this day. The Royal Academy exhibited one of her paintings in 1850. Now, her supporters, including Queen Victoria and Richard Rathbourne, arranged a public subscription to finance for her in the final years until she died in 1850 at the age of 66. She wasn't doing great financially, but those who had supported her art and, you know, made sure she was able to survive. Somewhat taken care of. Yes. The first exhibition of Biffin's work for a hundred years. A Biffin exhibition? was called Without Hands, The Art of Sarah Biffin, and it was held at the galleries of Philip Mould and Company in London in 2022. One of her best-known works, again, a self-portrait, painted at the height of her fame in the early 1820s, was sold at Sotheby's as a part of the late Dr. Erica Pohl Stroher collection. The auction estimate topped out at about 1,800 pounds, which would be like $2,300, which is a remarkable sum for a relatively unknown miniaturist working in the currently unfashionable early 19th century. But during the auction, a furious bidding war broke out, and that saw the work sell for 137,500 pounds, about $180,000. I wonder what sparked the bidding war. The fact that this work is incredible, and she's incredible, and it doesn't matter that the time period is not in fashion right now. She's in fashion because Mm. she's so rad. 
The story of Biffin's life and the fact that she was so talented considering her disability is what really attracted bidders. That's according to Philip Mould director Lawrence Hendra. He talked to Antiques Trade Gazette following the sale. He actually had bid on it but wasn't able to take it home. People, he said, have a profound respect for those who are able to overcome adversity, and I can think of few other artists who achieved this to a greater extent than Biffin. So he was a Biffin bitter. He was a Biffin bitter, an unsuccessful Biffin bitter. At the exit, Biffin. Okay, you're showing me, okay, that's a portrait. It's a self-portrait. Oh my God. Incredible, right? That's amazing. I'm so blown away. I can't believe I didn't know about this woman. The fact that she went through what she went through and succeeded the way that she did and made herself a name and did the things that she loved. I mean, I'm just, I'm wow, yeah. is all, I guess. Yeah, I had never heard of her. Incredible story. I got my information from the Guardian, rct.uk, news.artnet.com philipmold.com and shop.ford.com. No, wait, that was something I was looking at differently. It doesn't have anything to do with her. (laughs) Want to welcome the most recent members to the Order of Freaks, those who are supporting us on Patreon. Tiffany, Ellarock208, Amy, Trent, and Babs Blue Eyes. Oh. Thank you so much for your support and welcome to the Order of Freaks. For those of you who are not members yet and you would like to be, We just had a a really fun Zoom call with uh, some of the members of the Order of Freaks a couple of days ago, and uh, they keep getting more fun every time we do them. It really is such a blast. And as a member of the Order of Freaks, you also get, uh, of course, the ad-free episodes and a bunch of other stuff like that, too, depending upon the level of support. Go to theboxofoddities.com. We'll see you next time, freaks. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. And fly it proudly. You beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at facebook.com slash box of oddities podcast on twitter at box of oddities and instagram at box of oddities podcast copyright 2023 all rights reserved sarah was incredibly sarah was incredibly prolific sarah was incredibly (laughs) prolific My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. 
History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.